Hello, my name is Ben Kitchings, and this is the History Voyager. As usual, thank you for listening. There are a zillion podcasts out there. Thank you for listening to mine. This is part seven of the History Voyager's deep dive into the Spanish flu. The thing I wanted to talk about before I get into the actual flu is to say that the response, or I guess the audience for this podcast, is very large. There's apparently a lot of you over on the uh, historyvoyager.com site um, that are listening to this, and I just now figured that out because I've been so busy with everything else in my life that I forgot to check there. And oh my god, there's just so many of you over there listening. Thank you so much, and I hope this is worth your time. Now, the thing that I'm going to cover in this episode is basically this idea of the Spanish flu as... I'm going to situate the Spanish flu with other pandemics in that in, in a certain sense, it's really no different because essentially what happened was the authoritative apparatus, that is just not just the government, but the medical authorities in general, failed. They, they failed to understand what the flu actually was. Up until 1918, it was almost universally thought that the flu was a bacteria agent, and also a whole lot of doctors and governments also happen to believe that, you know, humans were different and some, you know, like you couldn't give, like a Spaniard could not give the flu to, say, a, a Norwegian or a Jewish person couldn't give the flu to a Nordic person. Now, of course, this is fantasy and nobody believes this now, but in 1918, people thought that. Now, you have to understand as well that the flu in 1918 did not meet the juridical or legal standard of care for governments. So a lot of times your epidemic, your epidemiologist or your doctor care was exclusively at the local level. The Spanish flu in America caused another dimension. In 1918, Doctors in northern cities believed that black people and white people were basically different species. Although I don't know that they would have used that term because a lot of people, even in 1918, uh, might not have thought of evolution or species or whatever, but they would have had some understanding on some level. But anyway, the doctors in 1918 were finally forced to confront the reality that black people and white people were the same species. What that means is that a, they were forced to confront the reality that a disease given to a black person could be communicable to a white person. Now, what I haven't yet found in the research was did southern, farm, or southern doctors realize this sooner? And... That might be because they wouldn't have treated Spanish flu victims or maybe the records haven't survived. But what I've noticed is that the the doctors in Boston and Philly were basically shocked to learn that black people and white people could get 
could give each other diseases. Before this, and in fact, Philadelphia was hit very hard by the Spanish flu, specifically because the head doctor of Philadelphia simply did not believe, that is the Philadelphia Health Authority, simply did not believe that black people and white people could give each other diseases. The same goes for Boston. So people say to me all the time, well, you know, the 1918 flu didn't change society. Well, there you go. There's one of the big changes was that we figured out that actually, you know, people are people. Another big change was because of the 1918 flu, you know, health departments started to become a thing in America. It's also worth saying, again, that one of the great problems of the 1918 flu was that not only did public health not really exist, but in a lot of very fundamental ways, private health didn't even exist, to, to coin a phrase. Essentially, what we have here is the doctors in America were, were very much lacking in scientific knowledge or chemical knowledge of any kind. Uh, medicine was seen as much as anything as a philosophy. And also, I, th I think it's worth saying that the lifespan of your average person in 1917 and 1916 was into the 50s, in, into their 50s. So what that essentially plays into at least I think it does, is you're not thinking about, as a society, you're not really thinking about we have people that we're going to have to keep healthy for a long period of time. You know, the cause of death for a lot of these people would have been things like industrial accidents or agricultural accidents, which were very, very common, incidentally, you know, in even into World War II, uh, that was a very common uh, way to die. So it, it, we're talking about a society very unlike today where you would have people living with conditions that would have been serious even 10 or 15 or 20 years ago, well into their 70s and 80s and beyond. You know, that... American society, perhaps even European society, was not thinking as much about, you know, long-term care of, of people because they just didn't have the medicine. And maybe this was, um, I mean, I think it was one of the big determining factors as to why doctors did not have the what today you would think of as adequate medical training by any stretch of the imagination. It's worth saying that World War I was always the front burner issue during the height of the 1918 flu. Most of the time that modern researchers believe that the 1918 flu was going on, it essentially occurred under the radar of, mod of contemporary... Um, medicine. This is largely because contemporary medicine was busy with the war. A huge majority of the doctors in America, as poorly trained as they were, were busy in Europe at the time 
with the war. People were also thinking that the virus was actually bacteriological. And also, and this is very, very key here, most people honestly didn't believe you could die of the flu. Contemporary scholarship at the time of the flu was done mostly by military professionals, and most of them were British. The British people, that is the British doctors, were far and away concerned with defeating the Germans. You see, the, the Russians by 1918 had bowed out of the war, meaning that a million German troops could now concentrate on one front where they had concentrated on two. In March of 1918, 84,000 killers crossed over from America to Britain. These were hardened killing machines which would sow the seeds of a plague the world had never seen in hundreds of years. Of course, none of them knew that. They were American fighters, which were all basically somewhat infected with the flu. The flu was already working the way through the troop ship as it crossed the Atlantic. The doctors at the time were quite perplexed because they really, and I don't want to sound like they were idiots at all, but they really were flummoxed by what they thought was just a simple, you know, cold, which basically began strangling the people from the inside. It must have been a horrifying and bizarre sight to behold. They would report men dying in screaming fits as they caught it in the morning and were dead in the evening, in some cases. This ran completely counter to what people thought the flu was. It's crucial for me to reiterate that the flu, the word flu in the term Spanish flu, might actually be somewhat inaccurate because epidemiologists at the time and even some today really don't think it was the flu. They, you know, there's two different schools of thought on what the flu actually was. It's important to understand that epidemiology is very much a, I guess, jello. It's very much jello. In, in that what somebody thought yesterday might not be what they think tomorrow. But essentially, when you look at the 1918 flu pandemic, which researchers at the time have called H1N1, and we call it that today, when you look at H1N1, it doesn't have the symptomology that it had in 1918, which means either that it was a very large and horrible strain of 1918, of H1N1 in 1918, or that it was the flu acting in concert with another yet-to-be-determined pathogen, or it was something else entirely. Um, for To put it bluntly, one's brain simply does not shut down because of the 19, because of H1N1. Um, to put it bluntly, one does not bleed out of one's ears and nose because of the flu. Uh, that is the H1N1. So 
you have to wonder, was this just a very virulent strain of the flu, or was it simply the flu acting in concert with something else? It, it is, you know, even at the time, doctors would often notate flu cases in quotation marks, because even at the time, they really didn't think it was the flu. The name just sort of stuck, basically, as a contrivance of the media at the time. Um, and, and there you have it. The other thing that is, as with all pandemics, that is very strange, or perhaps not strange at all, because, an in, in fact, a pandemic is, you know, global in nature, that's what a pandemic is, is circling exactly who patient zero is. Patient zero, it comes in three or four different places, depending on the timeline. And this argument, I think, you know, 102 years later, basically, unless, you know, DNA comes, comes really much further ahead, I think is basically going to be here forever. But the argument is it either started in China or Kansas or with an unfortunate fellow named Harry Underdown in, in Britain. Now, what is interesting to note about Mr. Underdown, about uh, Mr. Underdown's case is that directly after he got sick with the flu, um, you know, hundreds of thousands of people were sickened by the flu. So, again, this is a, a futile effort of modern academics and scholars, but it is worth talking about, especially on a podcast about the 1918 flu. But here again, you know, you see the it's constantly coming up, the flu is constantly coming up against the the notion that it was bacterial in nature um, and that you look at the symptomology of the, our modern understanding of the symptomology of the flu and it just doesn't add up. It truly just doesn't add up. And so we're left essentially with these two schools of thought that either it was the flu plus something else, or it was this very virulent strain of H1N1. But either way, I think this argument is going to be with us forever. Contemporary doctors in 1918, as well as the nascent bureaucratic state that dealt with the health system in 1918, conceived of the Spanish flu until they didn't, as essentially what they called a three-day situation. That is, three days of incubation, three days of fever, and three days of convalescence. And for the vast bulk of people, that's probably actually what this was. But the thing you need to understand is that it wasn't that way for a lot of people. And historians are just now realizing the level to which people of the time 
in some cases out of ignorance and in some cases out of essentially out of some either misplaced pride for the, where they lived or whatever, what have you, race, location, or what have you, they would simply underplay dramatically the level of death and, and you know, carnage that this flu was causing. Modern researchers think that the virus really appeared in France around April 15th of 1918, and it killed people all through April and May and died down basically in May, but the virus that returned in June was seriously deadly. The spring virus followed the old three-day formula, three days incubation, three days fever, and three days convalescence. Apart from the high rate of patients, he concluded the illness was very little cause of anxiety. By the end of May, when it died down, they thought they were out of the woods, but it reoccurred in June with huge drama in rapidly mounting numbers, reaching a height by the third week. As far as the head of the clinic was concerned, the most disturbing aspect of this June epidemic was that the epidemic increased in numbers and it became much more virulent. While early patients had recovered swiftly, and seldom experienced complications, the second onset brought increasing numbers of respiratory complications. In June, it was estimated that all the cases admitted into the special influenza centers, some 2% had developed serious pulmonary lesions, of whom a uh, considerable portion of that had passed away. This was particularly the case in patients suffering from any old standing renal lesion. In such cases, rapid increases of renal inadequacy and profound toxema, which is essentially where your kidneys simply stop doing their job, um, led almost inevitably to death. The colonel thought that the movements of troops and that the war itself had a lot to do with the spread of the disease. He was able to track the outbreak of the pockets of the disease by the army's actual movements. So this furthered his cause in how he thought the disease was spread. As bizarre as this sounds, this was basically revolutionary thinking to people that you could literally see that, you know, disease doesn't travel slowly. It travels at the speed that it's being carried. You know, again, this is something new to the day because motors, that is the combustion engine, was new to the day as well. An early indication of the shock of how fast this disease would in fact spread are found in China. The, the early doctors in China were shocked to discover that the disease had traveled 300 miles in six weeks. This simply was unheard of. The early researchers in Europe simply did not believe those numbers because they didn't think that disease could travel that fast because, again, they were used to diseases traveling at the speed of the horse. 
and the walker. They really had no, it's as though they had no connection to the idea that the disease itself does not travel. It travels on things. As one digs into the history of the Spanish flu, one begins to see that a lot of medical professionals and other authorities at the time were burdened by what we today would classify, you know, for better or worse, as essentially magical thinking. You know, this talk of diseases not traveling on people or traveling on horses or traveling on trains, but traveling as though a spirit were carrying them or, you know, something like that, it really makes you realize how the scientific revolution has played out over these past 102 years. That the Spanish flu kicked off a level of understanding. The electron microscope was invented in the 1930s, in part because researchers wanted to study the Spanish flu. When the Spanish flu was seen under the electron microscope for the very first time, they saw the killer of millions. How many millions, they didn't know at the time. Again, that number continues to rise as historians and other researchers continue to hail deaths into this total constantly. It really is amazing when you think back to the level of either ignorance or hiding the death total that was going on, you know, throughout from 16 to 17 to 18 to 19. It's really amazing to think about the level of education that the Spanish flu caused people to want to get, to be able to study it from all sorts of angles. As more and more people from all over the world descended upon France, it's no wonder France became conceived as the, basically the start of this disease. But the USS Leviathan that left New York in 1918, in September of 1918, you know, already had the virus. The, the chaplain and Ed Clark talked about pools of blood and vomit all over the, you know, the ship. He talked about the stench of death. And what's interesting is that at the time, though it was known by later researchers, and even at the time, this was put down to a weakness of the stock of the people and not of the disease itself. But, you know, Chaplain Clark talks about these horrifying tales of these delirious men, some of them screaming as they were dying as because their brain was being starved of oxygen, other people deliriously wandering about the ship. I mean, you know. So later researchers have come back and essentially removed classism and racism from this dialogue and traced these people back, you know, to the cohort of Kansas. So, again, we're trying to circle patient zero, but, and I don't know that that's ever going to be possible. But anyway, this tale fits squarely 
with tales of other such encounters in Brazil and in South Africa all around the time. And some of these tales are quite bizarre because it's like people had pleasant conversations and then spontaneously dropped from this disease. It, and other people would just bleed from their nose suddenly and then drop. It was really rather strange. Anyway, so this is enough jabbering into a microphone about the flu for one day. But I did want to say thank you very much to all of you people that listen. And, you know, be sure to find me on my various social media channels at Ben's Charlie on Twitter. And my new Instagram handle is Ben Kitchings Podcaster. That is Ben Kitchings, K-I-T-C-H-I-N-G-S Podcaster on Instagram. Thank you very much, and I'll talk to you later. Goodbye.